0: Our Father, we have consecrated ourselves to you now in this song, in the prayer of this song, and we ask now, we would consecrate now to you our minds, our hearts, and our ears, so that what we hear will take deep root in our hearts and our minds, that you will implant your word into us to bring about the change that you desire to bring in each of us. We ask now in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that you would silence all of the evil voices that we often hear and that distract us from concentrating on the word and allowing it to be implanted deep in our hearts. We pray, Lord, that if anything from the kingdom of the evil one is projected against us this morning as we worship in this place, that you, Lord Jesus Christ, would send it back to its source to confound it there. And we pray that the only thing that will be allowed is that which is the express will of the Holy Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. And take your Bibles. And let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 10. Oops. 1 Corinthians, we're looking at chapter 8 and chapter 10. And uh, we're also going to be looking this morning at a few passages uh, from the Old Testament writings, and those will be on the screen for us for our uh, convenience. We've been in 1 Corinthians now since the beginning of this year, and um, we've been looking at what Paul says to the Corinthian church, uh, many of the issues that he addresses in the Corinthian church, concerns that he has about their church's life. And we know that... um, that a lot of what he wrote was in response to a letter that he had received from them. So there were a, a group of concerned people in the church who made Paul aware of some of the, pro- the problems that that church had. And so we really see the, the, the heart of a pastor here in the Apostle Paul. He, he's a shepherd who cares for the sheep, and he wants to communicate well to them and to address the very issues that they were concerned about. And that's what he does here. So in, in 1 Corinthians, up to this point in time, there are three major issues that the Apostle Paul has um, addressed and that we are, have looked at and are continuing to look at. The first is found in chapters one through four, which is the issue of division in the church. And uh, we spent quite a bit of time there and, and it's an important issue. The unity of the church is a very, very important issue. Paul addresses that. The second from chapters five through seven is the issue of sexual holiness. And so we spent a couple of weeks there too. Now here from chapters eight to chapter 10, it's one unit. So even though there's three chapters here, in, in, in one sense there's one continuous thought that goes all the way through. And here the Apostle Paul is continuing with the topic of holiness, but not sexual holiness, rather spiritual holiness. Paul saw uh, in the Corinthian church a significantly powerful spiritual danger. In other words, the apostle Paul knew that he saw that there was a dark spirituality that was at work within the church among believers. And that this spirituality was not rooted In the Holy Spirit, but rather rooted in unholy spirits, unclean spirits, evil spirits. Now just a very cursory reading of this passage, which we read under Andrew's leadership this morning, uh, makes it very clear to us that the Corinthian believers were living in what we would call a temple culture, a temple culture. Pausanias, the, uh, the, the well-known first-century Greek geog- geographer, uh, wrote in his book Descriptions of Greece that in, in Corinth there were 26 different sacred places where sacrifices were made to the various gods. Now, just, just look at chapter 8 and 10 with me for a moment. I just want to skim over it. This is kind of a bird's-eye view. Uh, look at 8.1. Chapter 8, verse 1. Now about food sacrificed to idols. Verse 4. So then, about food sacrificed to idols. We know that an idol is nothing. Verse 5. If there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. Go down now to verse 7. Some people are still so accustomed to, to idols. Uh, Go now to verse 10. For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, also verse 10, won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols. Now skip over, keep your finger there in chapter eight, just jump over to chapter 10. Chapter 10, verse seven. Chapter 7. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. Down to verse 14. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. Now verse 19. Do I mean that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything, or that an idol is anything? Okay, back to chapter 8. Eleven times. 11 times idols are mentioned. Idol or idolatry is mentioned in these words of the Apostle Paul. And he repeats a number of phrases like sacrifice to idols, or meat given to idols, or meat offered to idols, or an idol's temple. They were living in a temple culture. And I say that because what, I'm really, what I really mean is, if you're living in a temple culture you're actually living in a highly spiritualized culture. You're living in a highly charged spiritual culture. So chapters 8 through 10, Paul gives some very significant teaching, but in essence it's a warning. It's a warning to us, to the church, of the dangers of a a highly charged spiritual culture. Now, now, some of us might think, okay, John, um, it's good. The Bible says this. Glad it's there. It's in the Bible. There are places in the world where we know there are you know, real temple cultures like India and Thailand and other places, and we're glad it's in the Bible because it really applies to Christians who live there. But, but really, what does this have to do with us today? Why, why focus on this? Aren't there more important topics that we should be looking at? And yes, we know there are, temples in, Jerus- in Jerusalem, in Hamilton, and, uh, and there are people who worship there. But for the most part, we don't live in a temple culture. So is this relevant or irrelevant to us? And, and, and I would agree with what you're saying to a point, and, and I would also go a step further and say that for most of us, when the topic of idolatry comes up, we think immediately of what Paul says in Colossians 3, where he says that covetousness, or greed, is idolatry. Because we can relate to that, because we know people who who are wrapped up in greed, and we know it's become an idol in their, in their lives. We know that the love of money has consumed many, many people in a negative way. But I would suggest to you today, actually I would really urge you to consider this, that that we are actually living in a temple culture. And by that I mean we are living in a culture that is becoming increasingly spiritual in nature. So that the things that characterized um, this, uh, the first century temple culture, like what we see here in Corinth, are actually becoming more and more the things that we are facing today. If I can put this in another way, none of us here, uh, I don't think, I could be wrong, but none of us here are faced with an issue that someone presents to us a meat, some food that's been offered to an idol. I don't know if, if any of you had that experience before. Maybe a few of us have. Um, but, but for the most part, that's not an issue. We've never had that experience before. So, so that's what this passage is all about. But... We are facing other pressures, other enticements, other allurements and temptations to be involved in, to participate in activities that are even like entertaining in nature. Activities that have the same dark spiritual sources behind them just like the pagan idolatry in first century Corinth. In in Canada, in and broadly in the Western world, in the last sixty years, frankly in the in the course of the time that I've been alive, there has been a very decisive move away from a belief and an adherence to Judeo to a Judeo-Christian worldview. And the values that are associated with that worldview. And for many people, this is liberation. Like this is throwing off the, the oppressive shackles of Christianity and the Ten Commandments. And I think the goal of those who are secularists has their their, their hope has been that, that somehow by throwing off these religious roots in our culture, we can truly create a a just and a purely secular society. But secularism has left people destitute. Secularism has left people without an anchor for their soul. And so a vacuum has been created. And into that vacuum has come a dark spiritual force. And this dark spirituality has emerged and is continuing to emerge. So that today, when we think of some of the challenges that we are facing, challenges like the ideologies that are so prevalent in our culture and in our education system today, philosophies about the way we should live and the way we should not live, many of these ideologies and philosophies that we know are anti-Christian in nature And they appear to have, um, they appear to be secular, but they're actually not. Because the fruit of these philosophies, what we're experiencing today, actually comes from a dark spirituality. So the Apostle Paul's words in this passage are clothed in the language of a first century Um, temple culture, a first century context of a small local church in Corinth that was trying to survive and trying to thrive in a temple culture. But behind the clothing that Paul uses, the, the language of clothing, if we could peel all that aside, we would see that what he gives us here is actually helpful advice. It is gospel centered counsel. There are timeless principles that are here. There is life giving direction that Paul has in these words for us. Life giving direction that can help us to navigate in this highly charged spiritual culture in which we live. So essentially, this morning, I want to do two things. I want to talk about what we know about idols. Secondly, what we know about God in Christ. And then I want to give you a number of takeaway take points that come out of these, of what we're going to look at today. But these take, takeaways are, are going to be foundational to what we're going to look at two weeks from now. Because chapters 8 through 10 are very relevant for us today. And because it's such an important and complex top, topic, we're dedicating two Sunday mornings to it. This Sunday... And Sunday, April 16, the week after Easter. So, what do we know about idols? Well, look at verse uh, 4. So, then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, Paul says, We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world. That's it. That's what we know about idols. They're nothing. They're nothing. Now, Paul is addressing here um, a conflict that existed in the church. Essentially, there were two different groups of people in the church, um, and they had two different views about idols. So on the one hand, you had a a group of individuals, and let's say that they were new believers. They hadn't been in Christ very long, and so they had come out of idolatrous worship. they have been converted to Christ, and because of their or pre-Christian experience, they look back on on what they were involved in and they they say, there's a real power there. Like idols, they're they're very powerful. And I don't want to go back to that. On the other hand, you have a group of Christians, presumably who are are older in the faith, and they actually have more information. They're well-informed. They have knowledge. and, And their knowledge is that they know idols are just pieces of wood pieces of clay. There's no inherent power in an idol. Idols have just been made by human hands. Now, now Paul agrees with the second group. He agrees with what they're saying and that's what he says. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world. So he's agreeing with them but at the same time he's concerned about the knowledge they have. Not that their knowledge is wrong but that they're only operating in their relationship with the other group in terms of their knowledge. In other words, they're not showing love and concern for this other group of believers who see a real power in idols. So Paul agrees that idols are nothing. There's no reality there at all. There is no power inherent within an idol itself. And the Apostle Paul knows this because of how the Old Testament informed informed him. So Paul would have been familiar with the psalms, of course. And uh, one of the psalms, a very, very well-known psalm, a psalm, and I've heard many of you quote this verse before, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. You know that psalm? Psalm 115. Not to us, not to us, O Lord, but to you be the glory. And then the psalmist goes on and he says, he refers to people who worship idols. And he makes a comment about the idols. He says their idols are silver and gold. They're they're made by the hands of men. They have mouths, but they can't speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. Noses, but but they cannot smell. Feet, but they they cannot walk. They have hands, but they, they cannot feel nor can they utter a sound with their throats. In other words, Paul says, idols are simply lifeless. An idol is nothing. Now look at verse five. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, and what's in brackets here is very important, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, so an idol is nothing, but there are many gods, and there are many lords. Now, it sounds as though Paul is contradicting himself. On the one hand, he says idols are nothing. They're just make-believe. They're just so-called gods. They, they really don't exist. But on the, on the other hand, there are many gods, and there are many lords. In other words, he's saying the idol is nothing piece. That's not the full story. There's more information that you need to know. There's another perspective on idols that you need to think about. Paul is saying there are many gods and lords. He's saying, yeah, an idol is nothing, but there is something real about the so-called gods and lords. Now, why is Paul saying this? What, What informed Paul to make a statement of this nature? And I think to answer this, what we need to do is we need to take a little excursus out of 1 Corinthians 8 and we need to go back in time into the history of the nation of Israel. You see, in chapters 8 through 10, what Paul describes here, what the Corinthians were experiencing in this temple culture is a reality that the God's ancient people of the past faced. As a matter of fact, what Israel faced throughout its long history was the same thing from beginning to end. So let's go back now to the time of Joshua. And we know that Joshua was the man who took over the leadership from Moses. Moses brought the... The, uh, the, the people of God, right up sort of to the southern borders of the Promised Land. Joshua led them into most of the Promised Land, and, uh, but not, not to all of it. And there Joshua took them right to the point where they were standing on the, on the eastern side of the Jordan River, looking down towards the land of Canaan, the part that they had still not yet taken. And that brings us to Joshua chapter 24. Now, Joshua now is an old man and he knows that he is he's ready to die. He knows this will be, his, as it were, his final sermon to the people. And so these were the words that he uttered. He said to them, now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away, notice the parts that are underlined, throw away the gods your forefathers worshiped beyond the river. Now beyond the river is a a Jewish expression in the Old Testament writings, to the land of Mesopotamia. The river is the, uh, anyone want to guess? Euphrates. Euphrates River, beyond the river. That's where Abraham came from, from Mesopotamia, which is also where Babylon is. So beyond the river. Throw away the gods, your forefathers worship beyond the river. Now, now this is an interesting statement here. What's he saying? He's saying that the Israelites were still toying with the gods that go about back all the way to Abraham. This is like 400 to 500 years after Abraham, but the Israelites are still holding on to the gods that, that Abraham once worshipped before God called him to follow him, to believe in him. But not only the gods beyond the river, but, and the ones in Egypt, And we know that they were captives in Egypt for hundreds of years. So now they're out of Egypt, but they're they're still hanging on to the Egyptian gods. And serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, why would it be undesirable to them? It was the Lord who had saved them. The Lord had redeemed them. But for some reason, the Lord isn't desirable to them. But these other gods are whether the gods of your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites. Now, these are the gods they're facing now. Because as they moved into the land of Canaan, the Amorites were one section of that land. Amorites could also be translated Canaanites. In whose land you are living. They're not in all of it yet, but they're in a large portion of it. But as for me and my household, he says, we will serve the Lord. So what I want you to see here is that there are three systems of gods and each system of gods is connected with the nations where they had lived in the past. Mesopotamia, Egypt, and Canaan. Now why does, why does Joshua actually mention all three? Why doesn't he just say, throw away your gods? Why does he mention all three? He mentions all three because these three systems of gods formed the major spiritual warfare force against Israel throughout its history right to the end of the Old Testament era. They were constantly in battle with these gods and these gods were constantly tormenting them. So we have the gods of Mesopotamia. This takes us all the way back to the Tower of Babel. That's the land. It takes us back to Genesis 10, Genesis 11. You remember in Genesis 10... Uh, Moses gives to us a, a list of the descendants of the sons of Noah. Babel happens sometime after the flood, and the survivors of the flood, three of Noah's sons, Ham, Japheth, and, and Shem, and they are listed there, and their descendants are listed there. In other words, the various nations that came from these three men are there in Genesis chapter 10. Now remember, God had placed the curse on Ham because Ham had sinned against Noah. And it's interesting that the Babylonians, who are the Mesopotamians, the Egyptians and the Canaanites, are all descendants of Ham. They're all descendants of Ham. They are all worshippers of false gods. Now the, the people of Mesopotamia, they, they had a god or a goddess for, for every conceivable si- situation. And they, they had their principal gods, the real important ones. But, but each one of the gods had, had goddess consorts and goddess sexual partners. There were upwards of 300 gods in Mesopotamia. And what, what were they like and what characterized their worship? We don't have time to get into all of it, but if you, if you read the ancient sources, you'll see that there were all kinds of sexual encounters that were common among the Mesopotamian gods. And according to Babylonian myth or theology, they also believed that when human beings died, they, 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 they sort of survived in the spirit world, and they had the ability to return to trouble the living and so divination, that is fortune-telling, and, and magic were, were, were all a part of Babylonian worship. They were essential practices that the people engaged in. The people of Mesopotamia and Babel, they wore amulets around their necks. The amulets were sort of like lucky charms that people would wear to, to ward off evil spirits, but also to keep away angry human spirits that might come back to trouble you. And they believed that the images that they worshipped, they treated them as though these images were alive. And this is Abraham. He, he was born and raised in an immoral, syncretistic, and demon-ridden temple culture. 400 years later, Joshua is concerned that the Israelites are still hanging on to the Mesopotamian gods because those gods are threatening the purity and the worship of the one true and living God, Yahweh. There was a second group of gods, the gods of Egypt. Remember, they were in captivity in Egypt for a considerable amount of time, and they suffered greatly there. But because they were there for hundreds of years, they were also exposed to the, to the pantheon of the Egyptian gods, and Egypt was filled with gods. There were 39 widely worshipped Egyptian gods, but there were many more. And most of the Egyptian gods were in in animal form or human form with animal heads. If you go to the Royal Ontario Museum in Toronto, they have an Egyptian section there and they've got images from the past that they've dug up and they're on display there and you see the Egyptian gods and their human bodies with animal heads. They believed that nature was personal, that, that all of nature was alive. So even a piece of wood is alive, even a piece of metal is alive. They had this sort of pantheistic belief and nudity was, was very common in their religious shrines. And it was engraved into their artwork, which was all a part of the idolatry and the imagery that was embedded into the walls of their shrines. Now... Egypt or Israel is in Egypt for such a long period of time and remember it's very possible that the Israelites were forced to build many of the shrines that were used in worship of the Egyptian gods which meant this that Israel was also surrounded by all of the pornographic imagery of the immorality of the Egyptian gods and the sexual excitement or the sensual excitement that went with the worship of these gods. Now look at chapter 10, verse 7. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 7. And this this explains it. Chapter 10, verse 7. Actually, go to verse 6. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Verse 7. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and they got up to indulge in pagan revelry. Now this is a a reference to that time in Exodus when Moses went up on the mountain to receive the commands from God. And when he comes down, Aaron has led the people into constructing a a golden calf. And and, and they were eating and reveling and, and all kinds of immoral activity was taking place in the worship of this golden calf. Where did they get the idea of a golden cow from? They got it from Egypt. It was one of the God's of Egypt. The third system of God were the Amorites, all of the people of Canaan. And in order for us to understand what the religious pra- pra- practices of the Canaanites were and what was involved in the, in the worship of their gods, the best answer comes to us from the book of Jud- Judges. So we leave now the time of uh, Joshua and we come now to the time of Judges. Once Israel had settled into the land, um, judges were appointed to rule over the people before they were given kings in the future. And in Judges chapter 2, we read this, the gods will be a snare for you. That's exactly what happened. They were a snare from the time they got into the land and time, until the time they were taken away in exile a thousand years later. Their gods will be a snare for you. Another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. It's in plural there, meaning there were many Baals, but it actually is, should be, it, whenever we see two A's together in English, we, we use the, the expression A, Baals, but it's probably better pronounced Baal. They served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They provoked the Lord to anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtaroths, which is a plural of Asherah. So Asherah was this female goddess that was also worshipped, pronounced Asherah. Now, if you read 1 Kings and Second Kings, you will see that that. Baal and Asherah are always, usually, not not always, but usually, they're referred to together. And the reason why they're together is they're a god and a goddess pair. Baal means owner or master or lord or husband. He was the god of weather and he was the god of fertility. He controlled the fertility of, of agriculture and animals and humans. And so in order to gain favor from Baal and for, in order for him to bestow fertility for a farmer upon his crops, the farmer would, would have to engage in worshiping Baal and it usually involved ritual prostitution and sometimes even child sacrifice. The prophet Jeremiah spoke about this. He writes in chapter 19 of his prophecy that Israel, the Israelites, have built the high places of Baal. High places meaning like shrines or altars to Baal. Above the ground. Why? Listen to this. To burn their sons in the fire as offerings to Baal. And Asherah, she was one of the consorts of Baal. She was actually a sister to Baal. So here you have incest and polygamy among the gods. And Asherah was considered by the Canaanites to be the goddess of love. And the Romans referred to her as Venus, and the Greeks referred to her as Aphrodite. And there would have been a temple to Aphrodite in Corinth. Tom White writes in his book, the Believer's Guide to Spiritual Warfare. Throughout history, the Jews were constantly tempted to worship this pagan goddess and attend her rituals. And it it was this forbidden practice which finally led to Israel's captivity and the 70 years in Babylon. This is what we looked at last year when we studied the book of Daniel, Israel, and Judah, taken away into captivity for that long period of time as God's hand of discipline against them for forsaking the Lord and worshiping the Baals and the Ashtaroths. Now Joshua knew how attractive these gods were because these, these pagan gods make no moral demands. And drunkenness and moral, immoral partying is all, was all a part of their worship. And there were other practices as well that were associated with the Canaanite gods. And so we go now to the words of the prophet Moses because Moses had knowledge of this and he wrote in Deuteronomy chapter 19, this was before they went into the land, he said, when you enter the land, the Lord your God is giving you. Do not learn to imitate the detestable ways of the nations there. Let no one be found among you who sacrifices his son or daughter in the fire. Again, we've just mentioned that. Who practices divination, another word for divination is fortune-telling or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft, or casts spells, or who is a medium or spiritist, or who consults the dead. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord. Those are very, very strong words. So divination is fortune-telling. So things like um, uh, things like tarot cards, uh, crystal ball reading, tea leaf reading in a teacup. A tea Palm reading, it's it's all a part of divination. Uh, Witchcraft, which is essentially controlling the spirit world to do your will. So there are curses and blessings that that people involved in witchcraft get involved involved in. Um, A medium, someone who consults the dead in a seance, um, a medium will be someone who's in control, who... You go to the seance and you want to talk to your late Uncle Joe. Well, the medium knows how to talk to your late Uncle Joe. Now, it's not really your late Uncle Joe who shows up, but the medium makes you believe at least that you're speaking to your old Uncle Joe. These are the things that were associated. Now, we come now to the time of the kings and the prophets. And when we think of the kings and the the prophets, um, we think of, da- of David, we think of Sol- Sol- Solomon. If we could go to the next slide, please. Uh, these, these were Israel's two, two great uh, kings. Uh, but uh, Israel became a great nation under these two, two men. But, but that's not the whole story. Because when you get to First Kings, First Kings actually records the evil of the kings of Israel and Judah. And records how the kings of Israel and Judah actually led people into idolatry, into polytheism, into the sacrifice of kids. The one man who stands out, probably the most known with his wife, is Ahab and his wicked wife Jezebel. In 1 Kings chapter 16 where we read that King Ahab served Baal and worshipped him. And the commentator later, commentary later in the passage is this. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel before, before him. Ahab promoted the worship of Baal among God's ancient people. And many became devoted to that worship. Do you remember Elijah, the, pro- the prophet? He lived during King Ahab's time and, and, and he was depressed and despondent. And the reason he was lamenting He thought, I'm the only one. Like, I am the only true Israelite left who hasn't given himself over to the worship of Baal. And the Lord spoke to him at that point and informed him, no. He said, there are 3,000 who still not bowed the knee to Baal. Now, 3,000 is a good number. It's a significant number. It reminds you of Acts chapter 2. Pentecost, 3,000 get saved. Praise the Lord, 3,000 but only 3,000 out of a whole nation? And in chapter 18, we have that moment where Elijah takes on 450 of the prophets of Baal, and a great miracle happens. And when the people see the miracle that happens, the Israelites who were worshiping Baal, who've seen Baal defeated by an act of power from Yahweh himself, they cry out, The Lord, Yahweh, He is God, He is God. And there were a number of times in the history of God's ancient people where they they abandoned the false gods and they returned to the Lord. But friends, you read the history of Israel through, you read your Old Testament through from beginning to end, and you will see from the beginning of the nation until a thousand years later, right up to the end of the Old Testament era, right up to the exile that happens, they gave their hearts over to these three systems of gods. Now, how do we explain this? How, how do we understand the fascination of a people redeemed by God out of slavery in Egypt to go to the gods of Mesopotamia, Egypt, and Canaan? And we get insight from the prophet Moses. And that insight comes in the Song of Moses and this is the second song of Moses. The first song of Moses is when they come out from Egypt and they cross over the Red Sea. The second song is a song composed by him, which is in, in, the, uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, 32. And in the song, Moses gives some insight. This is the end of Moses' life. And he gives some insight as to what really happened. And there, there it is in one line. They sacrifice to demons. There were no gods. Demons. There it is. The Bible calls demons unclean spirits, unholy spirits, evil spirits, wicked spirits. Sometimes the Bible refers to demons corporately and calls them principalities and powers, rulers, the powers of this dark world. The forces of wickedness in the heavenly realms. Now, I'm sure there's someone who's sitting here today thinking, okay, Mahaffey, you are propounding today a belief that takes us right back to the Middle Ages. Like this is medieval superstition. And I would say, no, you're wrong. I'm not just going back to the Middle Ages. I'm going back even further in time. I'm going back further in time to a place called Eden shortly after creation when our human forebears, Adam and Eve, created in the image of God, were confronted in a beautiful, sinless place called Eden by a creature the Bible calls the dragon, the dragon, the snake. And the dragon entices them, the serpent entices them to sin. I'm going back into a time somewhere in the past, and we don't know exactly when it happened, when a great rebellion occurred in heaven. And Lucifer, who became the dragon, who became the serpent, Lucifer, one of the, 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 the archangels of God, who desired to be like God, rebelled against God, and a third of the angels of heaven were taken with him. And they came down to this earth as fallen angels, demons, evil spirits. Does that sound pretty medieval to you? It's not. The people of the medieval age believed that because they believed the Bible. It goes back that far. And since demons have come to the earth and are working in our world today, the whole world lies under the power of the evil one, and their one job is to turn people away from the one true and living God, and that is why demons masquerade as gods. Because the one thing that they want in their hatred of the living God is that the, living, the one true and living God will never be glorified by human beings. And so they do their dirty work. Which brings us now to the third thing about idols. We can exit our excursus. We can excurse from the excursus for just a moment. And we come to this third truth about idols. And that is the so-called gods and lords of this world, of the various religions of this world, are actually demons. Turn with me now to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 19 and 20. And here Paul affirms what Moses said, In Exodus 32, do I mean that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, he says. So he's affirming, he's affirming, an idol is nothing. But, he adds, but, the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. In other words, he's saying there is no such thing as a god called Apollo or a god called Zeus or a god called Aphrodite or a god called Artemis. There are no gods. There are no goddesses. They do not exist, but there are demons. And they exist. And when a a priest takes meat and he offers that to an idol, the demons are somehow involved in that act of worship. And when you writing to the Corinthians here, are in an idol temple and you take that meat that the priest has sacrificed to an idol and you, you take part in the festivities that there is a sense in which you are participating with demons. You're being touched by them. You're opening yourself up to them. That's what we know about idols. But what do we know about God and Christ? Well, look at verse 6. Go back to chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 6. Yet for us, there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and from whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things come and through whom we live. What an incredible statement is said here about the living God. There is but one God, the Father. There is but one Lord, Jesus Christ. When Paul uses the word one there, he's saying that Jesus One, Father, one, that they are one. That they are one. They are equal in authority and in power. And the fact that God is called Father, there is no other religious system in the world that has an idea, that has a concept of God being a loving Father who welcomes his wayward sons and daughters home. It's not found in any of the religions of the world. It's not found in the ancient religions. It's not found in contemporary religions. He is unique. And from him come all things. He is the source of all things. He is the origin of all things. And there is one Lord Jesus Christ who is co-unique with the Father. And through him come all things. In other words, he is the agent and the mediator through whom everything is created. Things which are seen and things which are unseen. And even the demons who masquerade as so-called gods owe their existence to the one true and living God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, let's deal now with some takeaway points. These takeaway points come out of chapters 8 and 10, but I'm drawing also from other portions in God's Word for for these points. And these points, if you could see them this morning, as not only um, coming out of chapters 8 and 10, but also as foundational to what I'm going to share two weeks from now on Sunday, April 16, Spiritual Dangers, Part 2. Are you ready? Seatbelts on? Number one, I've said this before. Number one, I've said this before. Religious pluralism is wrong. It's mistaken. Now, now verse, says, verse, verse 5, verse 6 says, but there is one God. There is but one God. Now, a religious pluralist will look at that statement, there is but one God, and they'll say, yes, 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 yes. Of course. But this one God can manifest himself in different ways. I mean, nothing's impossible with God. Wow, that sounds pretty good. So, so he can manifest himself as Jesus to some people, but to others he'll manifest himself as Vishnu or Krishna or some other god. In other words, there's only one god, but, but he has all kinds of different names. So, 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 so they're all basically leading to the same place. Listen, people who teach that, people who believe that, are woefully ignorant Of what the various religions teach people who believe that and teach that if they're teaching it they're actually insulting the practitioners of the world's different religions because there are fundamental and irreconcilable differences among the religions of the world religious pluralism is wrong according to what I've taught you today now Hear me, I did not say that we should therefore be intolerant toward those who hold to different religions. I did not say that. What I did say is that the premise, the theological premise of religious pluralism is wrong. Number two, idols and things associated with idols usurp the place that belongs to Jesus Christ alone. They usurp the authority of Christ, the place of Christ. They want to be worshipped. They want to receive devotion. And that belongs only to the Lord Jesus. There is but one Lord Jesus Christ through whom come all things. Jesus is truth. Jesus is life. But they want to tell you that there's life and truth in other places. And they do that because they want to take, they hate Christ. They hate the Father. They hate the one true and living God so much that they want to make sure that human beings will never give glory to Jesus Christ. That human beings will never bow down and say, Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. That is their one aim and goal. Number three idolatry and all of the occultism that is associated with it is rooted in our flesh. That is in our sinful nature. And it is energized by demons. So, think of Galatians chapter 5. In Galatians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul writes and instructs about how we can walk in the Spirit. Now why should we walk in the Spirit? Because if we walk in the Holy Spirit, we will not give in to, we will not satisfy the cravings, the desires of our flesh, of our sinful nature. The Holy Spirit will always lead us into holiness because he is holy. But Paul says, before he talks about what it is to walk in the Spirit, He talks, first of all, about the acts of our sinful nature. And in Galatians 5, verse 18, he says, they're obvious, they're clear. And then he gives us a whole list of what the acts of the sinful nature are. And it's just a sample list, really. But in the list, you could break it down to sexual sins, social sins, and spiritual sins. He says the acts of of the flesh The sinful nature are obvious, which are sexual sins, immorality, impurity, debauchery, sensuality, lewdness. Social sins? Hatred, jealousy, discord, dissensions, factions, drunkenness. Spiritual sins, he mentions two, and he puts them right in the middle. And what are they? Idolatry and witchcraft. Idolatry and sorcery. What am I saying here? Me, you, without the grace of God that transforms our hearts, without the Holy Spirit who has come into us, without the grace of God and without the Holy Spirit, your heart, my heart, has a propensity toward idolatry, and sorcery because out of the heart, Jesus said, comes all kinds of wicked things. Our hearts are fallen, our hearts are corrupted and left to ourselves without the grace of God. I would naturally follow some other false god because if I follow that false god, there are more, no moral standards by which I have to live. I would engage in idolatrous worship, I would engage in witchcraft, because I and my selfishness want to have some kind of control over the spirit world to get evil spirits to do my bidding. It's in our hearts, it's in our hearts. But it is also energized by demons. Remember the temptation of our Lord Jesus. Remember he's taken into the wilderness for 40 days? our Lord Jesus did not have a sinful nature like Adam before Adam sinned. He was without sin. In him, there was no sin. But he was tempted by Satan, and the temptation was real. And in, during that 40-day period, when that temptation happened, there were three specific temptations that came. But the third one was, if you bow down, Satan said this, if you bow down, worship me. Worship me, that's all. Just have to do it for a minute. Just for a second. Just bow down and worship me for just one moment. And I will give you all the kingdoms of this world. Do you realize how, Im- how powerful that temptation was? Because Jesus came to die. That he might win back the nations and the kingdoms of the world. That they would all become his. That the kingdoms of this world would become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. And he would reign over them forever and ever. And all he had to do was just just worship Satan for just one second. And Satan would have given him all of that. He could have accomplished it all without the cross. And he knew what lay ahead of him with the cross. So much so that he prayed in the garden. Remember, Father, if it is possible, take this cup from me. Energized. Energized by evil supernaturalism idolatry is rooted in our flesh and energized by demons number four idolatry is an open door for demons an open door that's why paul gives this warning here in chapter 10 in chapter 10 the warning is there listen when you engage in idolatry if you play around with witchcraft if you get involved in fortune-telling and palm reading, if you, if you become active in spiritism in some form, participating in seances, if you even just think, well, you know, I can just play around with a Ouija board. If, if, if you do that kind of thing, you, you are actually opening up a door for demons. Now, I'm not saying that every time people do those things, A demon goes through the door I'm not saying that but I'm saying the door is open the door is open because here's what happens in the mind of a demon when you participate in these kinds of things they see that as you giving them a right to come in they see it as an invitation it's as though you're saying you're welcome now it doesn't matter what you intend. Oh, you know, I was just I was just playing around, just playing around with a Ouija board. Oh yeah, I went to a palm reader, had my palm read and oh yeah, I went to, you know, a séance once. We did it because, you know, it's sort of entertaining. Had my teacups, my tea leaves read in a teacup once. Doesn't really matter because I don't, you know, I didn't intend anything by it. But that's not how demons think about what you're doing. Because demons are legalists. And if they believe that you've given them a right to enter, then they can come into your life and they can entrench themselves in your life until you are willing to acknowledge your sin and to renounce Satan and his works and to place under the blood of Jesus Christ what you have done and that through Christ then and through Christ alone, you can take back the rights and the grounds that you may have given to the evil one. I close with a final point, and that is this, a wonderful truth, a truth that I hope will encourage you. I think everything I've been saying up to this point in time is kind of heavy and dark. But here's a truth that should encourage you, and I trust prepare you for what I'll say in two weeks' time, and that is this, the demons are subject to Jesus. Hallelujah. Have you read the Gospels through? Every time a demon came into the presence of God, towering in fear, Jesus dealt decisively with demonic spirits. And we have an incredible story in Luke 10. Jesus sends the 70 out on their mission. And they go out and they're, they're preaching the gospel and they're healing the sick and they're casting out demons and they come running back to Jesus and a little time of a debrief with Jesus afterwards and they're so excited and they're filled with joy and the first thing that comes out of the disciples' mouths are, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. Hallelujah. They experience the power of Christ And the Bible says in the book of Colossians that Jesus Christ has disarmed the principalities and the powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. By His death on the cross and the shedding of His blood, He has triumphed over the power of the evil one. That is why in Revelation it says they overcame Him by the blood of the Lamb. And in 1 John, the Apostle John says these wonderful truths. Greater, greater is he who is in you. Who is he? Jesus Christ. There is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, the Bible says. Greater is he, Jesus, in you than he, the devil, and all of his demons who are in the world. Please stand. Please stand. Let's pray. Let's pray together. bow our heads and pray Lord Jesus we marvel at your power we marvel at your greatness we worship you this morning there is but one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we live thank you for your death on the cross Thank thank you for your triumph over the forces of evil. Thank you that you have disarmed the principalities and the powers. And Lord, before we sing, before we bring our time of worship to a conclusion, Lord, we ask for those today who may be among us who in some way have opened the doors. Oh, Lord, come to them today. Show your saving power today. Lord, enter lives today and cast away all forms of evil. Work in all of our hearts to bring about a deep and a true repentance so that there is no participating with demons at all, no cooperation with the evil one and his schemes. Lord, purify us, your people, that our worship will always be without guile, without any blemish, without any tarnishing or tainting at all, without any Touch of dark powers, so that we are free to worship and to serve you, the Lord God, and to give you glory because you and you alone deserve it all. Lord, we look forward to that day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Lord, speed the day, we pray. Amen. It's Amen. to the Father, the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Friends, I think some people need to be prayed for today. And so in just a moment, when I close our time in prayer, um, if you would like to receive prayer for any reason, I would encourage you just to slip out of your seat and come to the front. I'm gonna ask our pastors and ministry team members, any elders who are present with us, to remain behind to pray with those who may respond so that we can have a time of prayer with you for whatever the need is. Before I pray, let me say, say this. Let me just read to you from God's Word. The Apostle Paul writes these words. For I am convinced, he says, I'm convinced, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, some of you may have opened the door in the past to demons, and you may be suffering the consequences of that today. But if you have come to faith in Jesus Christ, you still need counsel because you need to be set free from any remaining shackles that the enemy has in your life. But if you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, here's one thing the demons cannot do to you. They can harass you, they can tempt you, they can attack you. And that would be true of all of us. But here's one thing they cannot do. They cannot separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Isn't that great news? Nothing in all creation. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this incredible truth. We thank you for your awesome power. We thank you for the love of God. And we thank you that nothing can separate us from God's love, which is found in you. Now, Lord, I pray by your spirit, you will minister to people's hearts, and if people need prayer, they will come and receive it and any counsel that is needed so that, Lord, all of us can walk in your ways and thrive in your truth and be free of the things that shackle us. Amen.